Chapter Sixteen of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, May two thousand eight. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Sixteen, Scenes at the Plantation. Early the next morning, I left my grandmother's with my youngest child. My boy was ill, and I left him behind. I had many sad thoughts as the old wagon jolted on. Hitherto I had suffered alone. Now my little one was to be treated as a slave. As we drew near the great house, I thought of the time when I was formerly sent there out of revenge. I wondered for what purpose I was now sent. I could not tell. I resolved to obey orders so far as duty required, but within myself I determined to make my stay as short as possible. Mr. Flint was waiting to receive us, and told me to follow him upstairs to receive orders for the day. My little Ellen was left below in the kitchen. It was a change for her, who had been always so carefully tended. My young master said she might amuse herself in the yard. This was kind of him, since the child was hateful to his sight. My task was to fit up the house for the reception of the bride. In the midst of sheets, tablecloths, towels, drapery, and carpeting, my head was as busy planning, as were my fingers with the needle. At noon I was allowed to go to Ellen. She had sobbed herself to sleep. I heard Mr. Flint say to a neighbor, "'I've got her down here, and I'll soon take the town notions out of her head. My father is partly to blame for her nonsense. He ought to have broke her in long ago." The remark was made within my hearing, and it would have been quite as manly to have made it to my face. He had said things to my face which might, or might not, have surprised his neighbour if he had known of them. He was a chip off the old block. I resolved to give him no cause to accuse me of being too much of a lady, so far as work was concerned. I worked day and night with wretchedness before me. When I lay down beside my child I felt how much easier it would be to see her die than to see her master beat her about, as I daily saw him beat other little ones. The spirit of the mothers was so crushed by the lash that they stood by without courage to remonstrate. How much more must I suffer before I should be broke in to that degree? I wished to appear as contented as possible. Sometimes I had an opportunity to send a few lines home, and this brought up recollections that made it difficult, for a time, to seem calm and indifferent to my lot. Notwithstanding my efforts, I saw that Mr. Flint regarded me with a suspicious eye. Ellen broke down under the trials of her new life. Separated from me, with no one to look after her, she wandered about, and in a few days cried herself sick. One day she sat under the window where I was at work crying that weary cry which makes a mother's heart bleed. I was obliged to steel myself to bear it. After a while it ceased. I looked out, and she was gone. As it was near noon I ventured to go down in search of her. The great house was raised two feet above the ground. I looked under it, and saw her about midway, fast asleep. I crept under and drew her out. As I held her in my arms I thought how well it would be for her if she never waked up and I uttered my thought aloud. I was startled to hear some one say, "'Did you speak to me?' 
I looked up and saw Mr. Flint standing beside me. He said nothing further, but turned, frowning, away. That night he sent Ellen a biscuit and a cup of sweetened milk. This generosity surprised me. I learned afterwards that in the afternoon he had killed a large snake which crept from under the house, and I supposed that incident had prompted his unusual kindness. The next morning the old cart was loaded with shingles for town. I put Ellen into it and sent her to her grandmother. Mr. Flint said I ought to have asked his permission. I told him the child was sick and required attention which I had no time to give. He let it pass, for he was aware that I had accomplished much work in a little time. I had been three weeks on the plantation when I planned a visit home. It must be at night after everybody was in bed. I was six miles from town, and the road was very dreary. I was to go with a young man, who I knew often stole to town to see his mother. One night, when all was quiet, we started. Fear gave speed to our steps, and we were not long in performing the journey. I arrived at my grandmother's. Her bedroom was on the first floor, and the window was open, the weather being warm. I spoke to her, and she awoke. She let me in and closed the window, lest some late passer-by should see me. A light was brought, and the whole household gathered round me, some smiling and some crying. I went to look at my children, and thanked God for their happy sleep. The tears fell as I leaned over them. As I moved to leave, Benny stirred. I turned back and whispered, "'Mother is here.' After digging at his eyes with his little fist, they opened, and he sat up in bed, looking at me curiously. Having satisfied himself that it was I, he exclaimed, "'Oh, mother! You ain't dead, are you? They didn't cut off your head at the plantation, did they?' My time was up too soon, and my guide was waiting for me. I laid Benny back in his bed and dried his tears by a promise to come again soon. Rapidly we retraced our steps back to the plantation. About halfway we were met by a company of four patrols. Luckily we heard their horses' hoofs before they came in sight, and we had time to hide behind a large tree. They passed, hallooing and shouting in a manner that indicated a recent carousal. How thankful we were that they had not their dogs with them! We hastened our footsteps, and when we arrived on the plantation, we heard the sound of the hand-mill. The slaves were grinding their corn. We were safely in the house before the horn summoned them to their labour. I divided my little parcel of food with my guide, knowing that he had lost the chance of grinding his corn, and must toil all day in the field. Mr. Flint often took an inspection of the house, to see that no one was idle. The entire management of the work was trusted to me, because he knew nothing about it. And rather than hire a superintendent, he contented himself with my arrangements. He had often urged upon his father the necessity of having me at the plantation to take charge of his affairs, and make clothes for the slaves. But the old man knew him too well to consent to that arrangement. When I had been working a month at the plantation, the great-aunt of Mr. Flint came to make him a visit. This was the good old lady who paid fifty dollars for my grandmother, for the purpose of making her free, when she stood on the auction-block. My grandmother loved this old lady, whom we all called Miss Fanny. She often came to take tea with us. On such occasions the table was spread with a snow-white cloth, and the china cups and silver spoons were taken from the old-fashioned buffet. There were hot muffins, tea-rusks, and delicious sweetmeats. My grandmother kept two cows and the fresh cream was Miss Fanny's delight. She invariably declared that it was the best in town. The old ladies had cosy times together. 
They would work and chat, and sometimes, while talking over old times, their spectacles would get dim with tears, and would have to be taken off and wiped. When Miss Fanny bade us good-bye, her bag was filled with grandmother's best cakes, and she was urged to come again soon. There had been a time when Dr. Flint's wife came to take tea with us, and when her children were also sent to have a feast of Aunt Marthy's nice cooking. But after I became an object of her jealousy and spite, she was angry with Grandmother for giving a shelter to me and my children. She would not even speak to her in the street. This wounded my grandmother's feelings, for she could not retain ill-will against the woman whom she had nourished with her milk when a babe. The doctor's wife would gladly have prevented our intercourse with Miss Fanny, if she could have done it. But fortunately she was not dependent on the bounty of the Flints. She had enough to be independent, and that is more than can ever be gained from charity, however lavish it may be. Miss Fanny was endeared to me by many recollections, and I was rejoiced to see her at the plantation. The warmth of her large, loyal heart made the house seem pleasanter while she was in it. She stayed a week, and I had many talks with her. She said her principal object in coming was to see how I was treated, and whether anything could be done for me. She inquired whether she could help me in any way. I told her I believed not. She condoled with me in her own peculiar way, saying she wished that I and all my grandmother's family were at rest in our graves, for not until then should she feel any peace about us. The good old soul did not dream that I was planning to bestow peace upon her, with regard to myself and my children, not by death, but by securing our freedom. Again and again I had traversed those dreary twelve miles to and from the town, and all the way I was meditating upon some means of escape for myself and my children. My friends had made every effort that ingenuity could devise to effect our purchase, but all their plans had proved abortive. Dr. Flint was suspicious, and determined not to loosen his grasp upon us. I could have made my escape alone, but it was more for my helpless children than for myself that I longed for freedom. Though the boon would have been precious to me above all price, I would not have taken it at the expense of leaving them in slavery. Every trial I endured, every sacrifice I made for their sakes, drew them closer to my heart, and gave me fresh courage to beat back the dark waves that rolled and rolled over me in a seemingly endless night of storms. The six weeks were nearly completed when Mr. Flint's bride was expected to take possession of her new home. The arrangements were all completed and Mr. Flint said I had done well. He expected to leave home on Saturday, and return with his bride the following Wednesday. After receiving various orders from him, I ventured to ask permission to spend Sunday in town. It was granted, for which favour I was thankful. It was the first I had ever asked of him, and I intended it should be the last. I needed more than one night to accomplish the project I had in view, but the whole of Sunday would give me an opportunity. I spent the Sabbath with my grandmother. A calmer, more beautiful day never came down out of heaven. To me it was a day of conflicting emotions. Perhaps it was the last day I should ever spend under that dear old sheltering roof. Perhaps these were the last talks I should ever have with the faithful old friend of my whole life. Perhaps it was the last time I and my children should be together. Well, better so, I thought, than that they should be slaves. I knew the doom that awaited my fair baby in slavery and I determined to save her from it, or perish in the attempt. I went to make this vow at the graves of my poor parents, in the burying-ground of the slaves. There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary be at rest. 
There the prisoners rest together. They hear not the voices of the oppressor. The servant is free from his master. I knelt by the graves of my parents, and thanked God, as I had often done before, that they had not lived to witness my trials, or to mourn over my sins. I had received my mother's blessing when she died, and in many an hour of tribulation I had seemed to hear her voice, sometimes chiding me, sometimes whispering loving words into my wounded heart. I have shed many and bitter tears, to think that when I am gone from my children they cannot remember me with such entire satisfaction as I remembered my mother. The graveyard was in the woods, and twilight was coming on. Nothing broke the death-like stillness except the occasional twitter of a bird. My spirit was overawed by the solemnity of the scene. For more than ten years I had frequented this spot, but never had it seemed to me so sacred as now. A black stump at the head of my mother's grave was all that remained of a tree my father had planted. His grave was marked by a small wooden board bearing his name, the letters of which were nearly all obliterated. I knelt down and kissed them, and poured forth a prayer to God for guidance and support in the perilous step I was about to take. As I passed the wreck of the old meeting-house, where, before Nat Turner's time, the slaves had been allowed to meet for worship, I seemed to hear my father's voice come from it bidding me not to tarry till I reached freedom, or the grave. I rushed on with renovated hopes. My trust in God had been strengthened by that prayer among the graves. My plan was to conceal myself at the house of a friend, and remain there a few weeks till the search was over. My hope was that the doctor would get discouraged, and for fear of losing my value, and also of subsequently finding my children among the missing, he would consent to sell us, and I knew somebody would buy us. I had done all in my power to make my children comfortable during the time I expected to be separated from them. I was packing my things when Grandmother came into the room, and asked what I was doing. "'I am putting my things in order,' I replied. I tried to look and speak cheerfully, but her watchful eye detected something beneath the surface. She drew me towards her, and asked me to sit down. She looked earnestly at me, and said, "'Linda, do you want to kill your old Grandmother? Do you mean to leave your little helpless children?' I am old now, and cannot do for your babies as I once did for you." I replied that if I went away, perhaps their father would be able to secure their freedom. "'Ah, oh, my child,' said she, "'don't trust too much to him. Stand by your own children, and suffer with them till death. Nobody respects a mother who forsakes her children, and if you leave them, you will never have a happy moment. If you go, you will make me miserable the short time I have to live. You would be taken and brought back, and your sufferings would be dreadful. Remember, poor Benjamin. Do give it up, Linda. Try to bear a little longer. Things may turn out better than we expect. My courage failed me, in view of the sorrow I should bring on that faithful, loving old heart. I promised I would try longer, and that I would take nothing out of her house without her knowledge. Whenever the children climbed on my knee or laid their heads on my lap, she would say, Poor little souls, what would you do without a mother? She doesn't love you as I do and she would hug them to her own bosom, as if to reproach me for my want of affection, but she knew all the while that I loved them better than my life. I slept with her that night, and it was the last time. The memory of it haunted me for many a year. On Monday I returned to the plantation, and busied myself with preparations for the important day. Wednesday came. It was a beautiful day, and the faces of the slaves were as bright as the sunshine. The poor creatures were merry. 
They were expecting little presents from the bride, and hoping for better times under her administration. I had no such hopes for them. I knew that the young wives of slaveholders often thought their authority and importance would be best established and maintained by cruelty. And what I had heard of young Mrs. Flint gave me no reason to expect that her rule over them would be less severe than that of the master and overseer. Truly the colored race are the most cheerful and forgiving people on the face of the earth. That their masters sleep in safety is owing to their superabundance of heart. And yet they look upon their sufferings with less pity than they would bestow on those of a horse or a dog. I stood at the door with others to receive the bridegroom and bride. She was a handsome, delicate-looking girl, and her face flushed with emotion at sight of her new home. I thought it likely that visions of a happy future were rising before her. It made me sad, for I knew how soon clouds would come over her sunshine. She examined every part of the house, and told me she was delighted with the arrangements I had made. I was afraid old Mrs. Flint had tried to prejudice her against me, and I did my best to please her. All passed off smoothly for me until dinner-time arrived. I did not mind the embarrassment of waiting on a dinner-party for the first time in my life, half so much as I did the meeting with Dr. Flint and his wife, who would be among the guests. It was a mystery to me why Mrs. Flint had not made her appearance at the plantation during all the time I was putting the house in order. I had not met her face to face for five years, and I had no wish to see her now. She was a praying woman, and doubtless considered my present position a special answer to her prayers. Nothing could please her better than to see me humbled and trampled upon. I was just where she would have me, in the power of a hard, unprincipled master. She did not speak to me when she took her seat at table, but her satisfied, triumphant smile when I handed her plate was more eloquent than words. The old doctor was not so quiet in his demonstrations. He ordered me here and there, and spoke with peculiar emphasis when he said, "'Your mistress!' I was drilled like a disgraced soldier. When all was over and the last key turned, I sought my pillow, thankful that God had appointed a season of rest for the weary. The next day my new mistress began her housekeeping. I was not exactly appointed maid of all work, but I was to do whatever I was told. Monday evening came. It was always a busy time. On that night the slaves received their weekly allowance of food. Three pounds of meat, a peck of corn, and perhaps a dozen herring were allowed to each man. Women received a pound and a half of meat, a peck of corn, and the same number of herring. Children over twelve years old had half the allowance of the women. The meat was cut and weighed by the foreman of the field hands, and piled on planks before the meat-house. Then the second foreman went behind the building, and when the first foreman called out, "'Who takes this piece of meat?' he answered by calling somebody's name. This method was resorted to as a means of preventing partiality in distributing the meat. The young mistress came out to see how things were done in her plantation, and she soon gave a specimen of her character. Among those in waiting for their allowance was a very old slave, who had faithfully served the Flint family through three generations. When he hobbled up to get his bit of meat, the mistress said he was too old to have any allowance, that when niggers were too old to work, they ought to be fed on grass. Poor old man! He suffered much before he found rest in the grave. My mistress and I got along very well together. At the end of a week old Mrs. Flint made us another visit, and was closeted a long time with her daughter-in-law. I had my suspicion what was the subject of the conference. The old doctor's wife had been informed that I could leave the plantation on one condition, and she was very desirous to keep me there. If she had trusted me, as I deserved to be trusted by her, she would have had no fears of my accepting that condition. 
When she entered her carriage to return home, she said to young Mrs. Flint, "'Don't neglect to send for them as quick as possible.' My heart was on the watch all the time, and I at once concluded that she spoke of my children. The doctor came the next day, and as I entered the room to spread the tea-table, I heard him say, "'Don't wait any longer. Send for them to-morrow.' I saw through the plan. They thought my children's being there would fetter me to the spot, and that it was a good place to break us all in to abject submission to our lot as slaves. After the doctor left, a gentleman called, who had always manifested friendly feelings towards my grandmother and her family. Mr. Flint carried him over the plantation to show him the results of labour, performed by men and women who were unpaid, miserably clothed, and half-famished. The cotton crop was all they thought of. It was duly admired, and the gentleman returned with specimens to show his friend. I was ordered to carry water to wash his hands. As I did so, he said, "'Linda, how do you like your new home?' I told him I liked it as well as I expected. He replied, "'They don't think you are contented, and to-morrow they are going to bring your children to be with you. I am sorry for you, Linda. I hope they will treat you kindly.' I hurried from the room, unable to thank him. My suspicions were correct. My children were to be brought to the plantation to be broke in. To this day I feel grateful to the gentleman who gave me this timely information. It nerved me to immediate action. End of chapter 16